0: Entering into a new preaching series uh, over the next few Sundays. So, over the month of October, we were um, going through a teaching series on generous giving. And um, now, throughout the month of November, we're going to be looking at this theme of the kingdom of God. Um, In the Church of England's sort of calendar, its liturgical calendar, if you like, uh, November is what's known as kingdom season, and so the focus is on what Jesus meant when in the Gospels he referred to the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, and that theme is picked up by the early church in the New Testament. What do we mean? when we talk about the kingdom. And today, uh, this Sunday and this weekend, um, all over Um, the Church of England and many other denominations actually around the world, um, we're celebrating All Saints Day. Now, depending on the tradition of church that you're from, that may mean something to you. It may mean nothing to you, um, which is fine. So we're going to unpack a little bit later through that Ephesians passage what it means to um, celebrate this theme of the sainthood, the people of God as the saints. So um, four weeks looking at the kingdom of God. So before we have a look at our passage, let me put some of this in context for us. Just imagine for a moment that you are living in the time when Jesus walked the earth in first century Palestine 2,000 years ago. And in that time, you would have been living under the power and under the regime of the Roman Empire. And um, in the Roman Empire, there was one lord and there was one king, and that was Caesar. All power emanated from Rome. There was a very heavy and burdensome and singular regime. And so when Jesus bursts forth onto the scene and begins to speak of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, it is a really radical, really subversive thing. Because in first century Palestine, if you were living under Roman rule then, there was one rallying cry for all the people, which was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so, um, if you were living in that time, to put your allegiance, to profess allegiance to anything other than Caesar, risked your life. So, when the early church begins to declare Jesus is Lord, when the early church begins to talk about the kingdom of God, it's hugely radical because the suggestion there is there may be another power that is higher than Caesar. There may be another kingdom which is greater than the Roman Empire. There may be another alternate reality with a different vision and a different set of values. And when the early church begins to pray the words that we now know as the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they begin to usher in a rule and a power and a reign of God over and against the Roman power that they're living in really really radical stuff and in the words of one Roman official two members of the early church to some of the early apostles they are accused of turning the world upside down so radical is this message Well, 2,000 years later in Western Europe, we live in our own kingdom. Now, we live in this country within the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland. We have a monarch and a system of government, but that's not really what I mean. Across Western culture, there is a power structure, there is a kingdom, if you like, there is a culture that teaches us how to live and what to believe, it tells us things about our moral compass, it tells us things about what we should believe on things like money and sex and politics and work and morality. It shapes and influences us, this this culture that we're part of, from the day that we are born through to the day that we die. We are formed and shaped by what the Bible would call the kingdom of this world. And over and above the kingdom of this world stands the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God gives us a completely different set of values, a different set of virtues, a completely alternate vision for life. And um, as followers of Jesus, one of the challenges for us is that we are called to live as if we are foreigners in exile. So for those of you, and there are a few as I look around the room, who are not originally from this country, um, hopefully none of you are in exile, you've not been banished from your countries, um, but you are living in a culture and living in a country that is not your birth country and your birth culture. You often might have citizenship somewhere else, a sense of belonging somewhere else, but you are living in this culture and in this power structure and in this society. And as people of God, the call that we have is to remember that our identity and our citizenship is somewhere else. We are children of God. We, our citizenship is in heaven, but we are called to live as foreigners in exile in this world and in this culture and in this time. Now, about 12, 12 years ago, that makes me feel old, Um. 12 years ago, um, Rihanna and I and a bunch of other people um, were spent four months uh, living out in Durban in South Africa, um, and we were doing some charity work out there and volunteering with an organisation. And uh, four months, when you're 19, which we both were, feels like quite a long time. And I remember a few weeks in sort of beginning to feel like uh, I almost forgot what home was like and Began to feel quite at home. Elements of South African culture, as Rich and Vanessa will testify to, are not not a million miles away from the culture of our country in the UK. At certain times of the year the weather isn't too different, it's much nicer there, but it's not too different at certain parts of the year. And so um, with English as the main language and other recognisable things around you, it's not too difficult after a short period of time to begin to feel like this is home and uh, I even began to you know adopt some of the uh, local slang and customs and my um, my fashion sense changed while I was out in South Africa. Rhiannon will tell you more about that. Uh, It was the product of peer pressure and and so part of part of my time out there was beginning to feel like oh I feel like I'm at home there were then moments where something would happen or someone would say something and you remembered, oh yeah, I'm a Brit living abroad and uh, this isn't my home and this isn't my culture. And you have those um, those moments of realisation. And I remember on one occasion a few of us in our group got a little bit homesick And uh, we did something really tragic and a bit sad, which was one Saturday afternoon, we went shopping and we went to the supermarket, Uh, do you remember this? And we went and bought, you don't remember it. Um, We went and bought some scones and clotted cream and jam. And, uh, and we had a little like afternoon tea thing in our house because we were all feeling a bit nostalgic about English culture. None of us, I'm sure, did that in real life. But anyway, um, that was us kind of trying to reconnect to home, you know, because we it was about halfway through and we were feeling a bit homesick. So that is what we're called to as the people of God, to be foreigners living in exile in a country that is not ours, acknowledging that our citizenship is somewhere else, it's in heaven. So All Saints Day then, what's that all about in the church calendar? The word saint that we use in English comes from the Latin word sanctus, um, which if you've ever been to a church where there's worship going on in Latin, if you've been on your holidays somewhere and popped into a Roman Catholic church, you may know that the word sanctus means holy. That word holy means set apart. Set apart. And prior to the Reformation, which happened in the church 500 years ago, um, the Roman Catholic Church, and still happens to this day, was in the practice of making people saints. So if you've been watching the news recently, you'll know that John Henry Newman has just been made a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Our church, like many others in this country, is named after two people who were made saints by the Roman Catholic Church, Mary the mother of Jesus and George the martyr. Um, There are many others across this town named after similar saints. So this was the practice up until 500 years ago, to make people saints. And one of the problems with that practice, and why I think the reformers um, changed and moved away from it, was that it gave the impression that there were two tiers of Christian. That you had the saints, the super holy Christians that had been canonized and given this title that maybe were closer to God. And then you had all the rest of the kind of pleb Christians, the normal Christians who, you know, didn't quite get that level of status. Everyone else, the great unwashed. And actually, When you look at the Bible and the New Testament in particular, that is not the description that it gives of the people of God and of the saints of God. Let's have a look at our passage from Ephesians 1. I'm going to read to us from the book of Ephesians. If you want to find it in the Bibles that are on your tables, it's on page 1173. And this is the Apostle Paul here writing to the church in Ephesus. And uh, I'm going to read from verse 11. This is what he says. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Right at the beginning of that book, of that letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, verse 1, which we didn't read just then, Paul addresses his letter to God's holy people in Ephesus, God's holy people. Some Bible translations, the King James, for example, um, translates that word holy as saints, to God's saints in Ephesus. That's a perfectly acceptable translation, the saints of God. Verse 11, let's have a look at that. Paul says, In him, that's Jesus, you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. You, says Paul, were chosen. Verse 14, Paul refers to the church as God's possession. We are saints, we are chosen, we are God's possession. Three years ago, there was a film that came out um, called Lion. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's based uh, based in India. And it tells the story of a young boy called Saru. And uh, he grows up in Calcutta in India. And as a very young child, he becomes lost and separated from his parents. So he ends up boarding a train, And uh, he's with his brother. Uh, He becomes separated from his brother, ends up boarding a train. That train uh, moves, and he finds himself, when he wakes up, thousands of miles away from home, having accidentally boarded this train. Thousands of miles away from home, in an area of the country where he doesn't know the local language. He's not able to speak English. He has no way of describing where he is from. He is hopelessly lost. India is a a huge country the railway network is vast and all hope seems lost and uh, the authorities try and uh, reconnect him with his family and are not able to and eventually uh, Saru is adopted by an Australian couple um, who have adopted another Indian boy in similar circumstances and Saru and his new adopted brother grow up in Australia with this new family And as Saru grows into adulthood, he uh, begins to realise something of his identity. He hears the story of what happened to him and how he's been adopted and how there is a mother out there somewhere looking for him. And he begins to have all kinds of doubts and questions about who he is and his identity and whether he's wanted and whether he's loved. And he wonders actually whether he might be second best, whether his adoptive parents might have adopted him maybe because they couldn't have their own children and he was the next best thing. And he wonders whether he is really loved and really wanted or, in fact, whether he's just a disappointment. And there's this really moving scene where he expresses all of this emotion to his adoptive mother and with tears in her eyes, she looks at him and she says, we wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. We chose you. We wanted you. And you know, that is a a beautiful picture of how God sees us. That we are. Chosen by him. We are wanted by him. There are no second rate, second best Christians. There are no lower tier Christians. We are all saints. We are all chosen. We are all wanted. John 3.16, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave all that he had, everything that he was, in order that we might be adopted into God's family and know the love of the Father. Paul tells us in Ephesians that God chose us before the foundation of the earth. Get your head around that. God chose you before the foundation of the earth. You were chosen and set apart and made holy. I don't know about you, but most of the time as a Christian, I don't feel holy. Do you? I don't go through life Feeling holy. In fact, we have a a saying, don't we, in the English language, which is that we will often say, Hey, I'm no saint. And actually, you are. God says so. You are a saint, holy, chosen, and set apart. Maybe you look at other Christians and you think, Oh, they're holy. They're saints. They're really close to God, or you know, they just seem to be really anointed. Or you look back in history, or you look in the Bible, or you look at those that the church has given the title saints to, and you think that's what a saint looks like. But God says, "You are holy, chosen, set apart. You are a saint." Turn to the person next to you and say, "You, you are a saint. You are a saint." So Paul tells us in that passage that we are blessed that we've been chosen, that we've been made holy, that we've been given grace, that we've been enabled to understand something of the mystery of who God is, that we've been given hope. Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul says, We have been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to his praise and glory. That's super wordy theological language, but here's what Paul is getting at. If you're married or you've been married, um, you might um, wear a wedding ring on your finger. Um, that is a symbol that you belong to someone else and they to you. It is a symbol that you have been chosen and you have chosen. It is a symbol that you are off the market and you are taken. And in Scripture. Paul uses this analogy of marriage to talk about the relationship between Jesus and the church, that Jesus has chosen you, Christian, that he has called you, that he has wedded himself to you, that you are taken and you are off the market and you belong to him. You are chosen. You are chosen. I wonder this morning if you know that you are a saint. I wonder how comfortable you are with that title. Maybe you don't feel like a saint. You know what? It doesn't matter because God says you are. Maybe you don't feel holy. Maybe you don't feel chosen maybe you feel incidental maybe you feel like your life doesn't amount to much but the reality is you are hand-picked chosen holy and set apart and deeply loved you are a saint of god you are a saint i wonder if we might stand for a moment and if the band could come up that would be great So just as the musicians begin to play, I want to ask you a few questions and invite you perhaps to respond and be open to what God might be saying to you. It may be this morning that you feel that your life is inconsequential. Maybe when you turned to your neighbor just a minute ago and said, You're, you're a saint, and they, they said it back to you, that felt really awkward. And not just because you're British and awkward all the time, but because actually it, you just thought, I'm an imposter. This is not an identity that I feel able to wear. I feel like a fraud. I'm not a saint. Well, God says you are. God says you are. God says that you're set apart. So is there a work of healing that God needs to do in you this morning? Does he need to speak over you that identity that is your birthright that he has given you? Do you need to receive words of affirmation that he has to you? Do you need to stop accepting the identity that the world has placed on your shoulders and accept the identity that God has given you? Let's take a moment um, to maybe listen, you might wanna close your eyes. God is here by his Holy Spirit. We believe that when we are open, he speaks to us. So what does he want to say to you? What does he want to speak over you? Have you bought into a lie? You are holy, you are chosen, you are set apart, you are loved, and God gave everything that he had for you. When Paul writes to God's saints, he's talking to you. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit now for those uh, in this place who feel like they struggle to own this new identity that you have spoken over them. Would you breathe your Holy Spirit upon them now? Where they have bought into lies that have been spoken over them by the enemy or by the world, would you correct? Would you affirm Would you open ears and open hearts to receive the truth That not because of what we've done but because of who you are We are holy, set apart, saints of God That is who you say we are Maybe you need healing Maybe there are words that have been spoken over you that have caused pain. Maybe identity is something that you've struggled with. And maybe this morning the Lord wants to begin that process of healing. Are you open to that? Receive him now. Receive his power.